0: I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. I've been interested in municipal planning in Erbil and other cities in KRI and Iraq for a while. I think that how a city is organized or not organized tells a story about the history of the community there and the priorities of the leadership in the area and what the future has in store for the society there as a whole. And for Mosul and Erbil, the cities couldn't appear to be more different to the naked eye. But they share a very deep relationship with each other in what is called the post-war political economy uh, that has driven much of the local, national, and international decisions in Iraq and Kurdistan since 2018. And what is the post-war political economy, you might ask? Well, that is much better answered by my guest today. Isadora Gotts. Isadora is a PhD student at King's College uh, who first became interested in Mosul because of its scrap metal economy, which grew out of the rubble that had accumulated in the violence that had subsumed the city uh, during the Islamic State's occupation there. And she's now in the process of examining the city as a whole, as well as its surrounding areas and other cities like Erbil and how they've been affected by the conflict as well in the past 20 years. So we also spoke generally about the joy and challenge of researching in Iraq and her own takeaways from the beginnings of her research so far. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let her do the explaining on all of this. Here's our conversation. Help a sister out and name some fish. By the way, I am recording now. Oh!
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> red means alert. alert. Red means
0: <laughs> red-, red means stop talking about fish in Alabama.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Never. That's what my research is on. You're fishing, uh, oh. Alabamian fish in Mosul.
0: Alabamian fish in Mosul. Are you bringing them there? Alabamian mezguf. I think you're, <laughs> that
1: sounds good, actually. <laughs> actually, it'd be mezguf with barbecue sauce and it'd be delicious. Yeah, I'll bet that would be, oh, that would be I good. always say that mezguf tastes like, it's like the Iraqi baby back ribs, especially when you put like dibbas on it because then it like really melts and has like a slightly sweet yet sour taste. Yeah, I was gonna say it has like, a tangy, yeah. Like baby back ribs do.
0: Yeah, Oh. Okay, so when you're in the Maidan Area in Mosul, you have to. Uh,
1: uh, what are you talking
0: about? I don't go to Mosul. You know, never, ever. <laughs> but when you do go, um, there's an area called Maidan, and uh, it's this fish market there. Um tell me if I'm mansplaining to you. You are, what? but that's like, fine. Yeah, yeah, Keep yeah. going. Exactly. <laughs> you have to get the dirty fish there.
1: You remember how sick I was on Friday? Yeah, yeah. we going to avoid. Uh... Well, but,
0: but then introduce them to some uh, barbecue, fish barbecue stuff from the south. I wonder
1: if they would like it. Yeah. They probably would. I was gonna say Probably like everyone likes barbecue sauce.
0: I was gonna say that that would barbecue sauce is great. I think they I think the Mosulawe community would be mm-hmm. very, very open to that.
1: Yeah. I mean they dip they dip like falafel and stuff like that in Amba, right? Which is like a sweet sort of chutney thing, but like it's like a like, right. mango y barbecue sauce.
0: And more to the point, I think the people there have been introduced to more drastic change quicker than like your barbecue sauce. Than situation. my barbecue sauce. Yeah. But you
1: know what I don't think they're ready for? Mustard based barbecue sauce.
0: <laughs> Neither are the Texans, by the way. Neither is anybody
1: but the people of the good people the, of South Carolina. Good
0: people of Virginia
1: and South Carolina. No, I can't Virginia, believe this is how we I'm Pretty sure Virginia's uh, ketchup-based barbecue. Well, actually, we're not big on barbecue.
0: No, you do uh, what? Is it dry rub?
1: Mm. Oh no, I'm from the DC area. That's a
0: good coffee slurp. I, re- I really got that on the headphones. <laughs> glad to be of service. All right, Isadora Gosling, ladies and gentlemen, the Queen of the Scraps.
1: <laughs> Best nickname I've that... ever had and ever will.
0: <laughs> the only nickname I've ever had. Uh, all right, let's start with Scraps because the way I first learned about you was when I was working on my documentary about it was about it was also about Mosul, uh, child labor in Mosul, uh, and uh, the kids that we were focusing on were scrap collectors, uh, and they would take they take scraps to the junkyard and they melt it down, and sell it for money and. Um, Uh, I was interested more in sort of the scrap uh, trade and the scrap industry that has grown out of Mosul because of all the rubble there. And uh, I came across your report, uh, Mm -hmm. the only report on this topic. Uh, And then not, it was only a few weeks later that I actually met you. Uh, But when I did meet you, I was like, the Isadora God. Wait, wait,
1: really? You read it only a few weeks, but like right before you met me? Yeah,
0: because Yasmin sent it to me.
1: Yeah, because we were like
0: going over the second edit and we were like really looking into like how to like perfect some of the like voiceover stuff for more information and like, bring it in. So let's start with that, uh, because I'm curious about how you first got into that topic, because you and me are the only two people um, that I know about who care about scrap metal and muscle.
1: <laughs> Funny enough, I met a journalist when I was working on it who was also really into scrap, but.
0: So three. <laughs> so there's three people. All
1: right, um, the holy trinity. The holy trinity. <laughs> um, yeah, so I like I moved to Suli in the summer of 2018, mm-hmm. and I had been like doing some like Iraq-related research before that and wanted to work on like, post-war stuff, primarily political economy was what I was interested in. And did, like, a couple of scoping interviews. And there was a couple of things that, you know, kept coming back up. I was like, you know, what's interesting that's going on in Mosul? So this is 2018. So this is, what, like, a year and a half after liberation, a year after, something like that. And people kept talking to me about um, the, about, like, about oil smuggling and about scrap metal smuggling. So I talked to people and I was like, you know, what's going on? What are the interesting things in Mosul? I've just arrived, like, you know in terms of post-war political economy. And they had mentioned oil and scrap. Mm -hmm. And oil just seemed like a behemoth of a subject I didn't want to touch. It also felt like it was like hyper politicized, probably quite dangerous. Um, And I was like, scrap metal? That's literally trash, sounds great. Um, Not realizing actually the sort of um, significance of the scrap metal trade, which I learned later on. But at first I was like, oh, this is great. This is inoffensive, no one's gonna care about this. Little was I wrong. <laughs> to actually, to my
0: benefit. But um, I was going to say, because it's super interesting and very dense.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so that's how I started working on Scrap. And and truly, when I was working on it, half the people that I met that didn't know much about post-war political economy or Mosul were like, you study garbage?
0: Can you can you break down the phrase post-war political economy for like non-academics who are like... I mean, we get that it's like the... The econ- economic situation after a conflict. But what, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> cool. You give me a face for a second. This is uh, my face to you. I know. I know. It's fine. I'm used to it by now. But uh, post-war political economy as like a phrase uh, in academia. Academia.
1: Academia. The academia. First was, for me. academia.
0: <laughs> what are all the different factors that constitute like uh, uh, what you analyze when you're talking about post-war cl- political economy besides just, for example, resources like scraps?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and again, academia has like different branches of academia have different sort of like definitions, particularly of what political economy is mm. here. I'm referencing to the politics of the economy. Right? like the, the sort of nexus and the linkages between these two fields of study, how they interact with one another, co-produce one another. Um, and how that plays out after conflict. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's about business and trade and about the way in which that's connected to political circles like elite politics, uh, patronage politics, this sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it can be resources, but it can also be about, you know, how politicians gain power through, you know, business investments or their allies in the business world that, you know, help keep them in power, th- this sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's a... Uh, so, uh, any form of trade, any form of trade, really, um, uh, will have political implications and political actors that are involved. And so, in that sense, you can look at it from um, like a political economy angle. So it's all—it's a lot about following the money and how the money talk uh, tells a story about the the power and how power is exercised in a certain place.
0: Okay, so before I interrupted you, let's walk back and talk about the political actors in
1: scrap. Sure. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so sorry.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> so. I mean, the, th- the interesting thing about Scrap Metal that I didn't realize when I first went into it was that none of these actors operate in isolation from one another. So it's really like you can only really talk about like a web of actors um, and they all exist and operate and have the power that they do because they rely on the network that exists between them. So... The people who were heavily involved in the scrap trade in like 2017, 2018, primarily when it was like the height of that trade, were it was like so it was a web of actors. It was partially you had businessmen who were sort of like owned scrapyards. You had the um, truck drivers. Mm -hmm. You had... The Hashid, you had their partners in Erbil who they sold the scrap to, so the scrap factories. Who are the Hashid? Sorry. Yeah, uh, the Hashid <laughs> are. So, Hashid al Shabi is like an umbrella term used for these militia groups that were created, um, that, for militia groups in Iraq that were created at different times but basically became um, known as the Hashid forces during the war against ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, they Many of them, the majority of them are Shia forces from the south, but in and around other places like Mosul, they're also comprised of like local forces. Mm -hmm. So in areas around Mosul, right, you have like Christian ones or Yazidi ones or um, Shabak ones. These are all different sort of like ethno-sectarian minorities in the area. Something that I... Avoid using as a descriptive term right off the bat because otherwise it makes the whole conversation revolve around a sort of like proxy narrative, which I think is also uh, reductive to trying to understand like local political economy, which is always about – or not always, but is in large part about how people exercise power and make money in a specific location
0: Mm.
1: like any other – security actor um this is absolutely not unique to them after the war was over they wanted a way to stay relevant and to gain more power especially in a world where the government was now paying their salaries and they just these guys like just don't make a lot of money Mm. like all the government or like public sector employees basically um and they very sort of smartly realized that if they you know invested in the economy that they could find a way to not only sort of make money, stay relevant, but also become more powerful actors, right? So the security situation, quote-unquote, was not the same as it was before. So they don't have the, like, legitimacy and authority to rest on as we need to provide security. So, like, how do you retain power in a given space when the thing that initially was the reason to be, your reason to be there doesn't exist anymore? Mm-hmm. And so they were also facing a lot of pressure, to sort of get out of Mosul because the Muslawis didn't want them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were trying to figure out a way to basically remain relevant and keep their, like, hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. Um, and the scrap metal trade, uh, and this is the case, like, across the board in any sort of, like, post-war setting – um, is that scrap metal is often the first resource and the first economic commodity that can be traded. So w- super often, the scrap metal trade is actually the first business that resumes after warfare. This was the case in Iraq after like 2003, after 2004, like... There was, like, a lot of articles when you tap, t- type in scrap metal in Iraq are, like, 2006, 2007, and they talk about how you would find Iraqi scrap with, like, remnants of, like, war, like, m- like mines and explosives in, like, scrap yards in Rotterdam, and they were freaking out about this in, like, hmm. 2006, Um You have the same thing in Syria. You have, yeah, just in—it's, in, it's again, to a lot of people that are not sort of, like— Looking at the sort of like local dynamics, they're going to think it's just rubble and it's just trash and people get rid of it. But really, it's it's there. It's everywhere. You can sort of just take it because it's you can't it's really difficult to discern who it belongs to. Right. So if you have like in the Maidan area that you were talking about earlier, which has been like totally flattened to the ground when before they sort of cleared it out. Right. Like you can't tell which scrap. Um, and sc- scrap in this case refers to any sort of like metal right. residue, right? Um, is this metal residue is this scrap from house A or house B? And also, maybe the the you know the airstrike that blew up these houses means that that the you know the the metal from house B actually flew into mm-hmm. the area of where house D is, right? right. So. Next to impossible, particularly for civilian um, homes to identify, like, cars, residue of cars is the same, buildings. Um, also
0: not a high incentive for people to clear it out themselves because of, like, for example, all the IEDs and mines that might be in the area.
1: Yeah, there was actually a lot of accidents that was happening after liberation, and yeah. people in specific parts of the country wouldn't accept scrap metal from Mosul because um, they weren't sifting through the scrap before they were sending it. Uh-huh. So a lot of the scrap was that some of the—a lot. There was a part, most of the scrap went to Erbil, but some of the scrap would get sent down to larger scrap yards down in Baghdad mm-hmm. um, and places in other countries when they would buy from Baghdad. They would say we just don't want scrap from Mosul. And I remember one time I was I did an interview in Kalar with a scrapyard owner and he like he was like, Yeah, we got we stopped taking scrap from Mosul after we had a big accident and he like pulled up his like pants leg and there was like a chunk of his leg missing yeah. because it had exploded.
0: Mm-hmm. You beat me to the punch actually a little bit by talking about how the, most of the scrap has ended up in our bill because that's what, well that's what I wanted to transition to because uh, to zoom out from just scrap uh, which is uh, how I first became interested in your work but uh, you've since kind of zoomed out and, and looked at sort of the overall effect on how city landscapes change because of conflict and mm-hmm. you focus you're you're focusing once again on Mosul you're also focusing on our bill a little bit too um, and so. As an example, when, when uh, a large amount of scrap metal needs to be shipped in, uh, somewhere, a lot of it has been uh, taken basically from, to give people sort of an idea of like how the pyramid of work works, you have like these kids who like collect the scrap metal then they take it to the junkyards and the junkyards my- uh, sell it and ship it and then it gets shipped to places like Erbil and then that gets used in construction of housing projects here and the housing projects uh, uh, situation in Erbil is booming right now, for now. Uh, <laughs> it was. It stopped. So, it was again. Yeah. Some things are about to change. Uh, there's a budget, and you can look. You can read it in the news. Uh, but <laughs> uh, that's another interview. But um, um, it's. I think that's an important thing to understand. How all of these different people, all of these different. Uh, uh, kids and militias and, every, uh, and, and real estate people are involved in this sort of the same web of, of destruction and creation. Mm-hmm. And that gives you an idea of how cities uh, uh, shrink and grow and fluctuate uh, based on what's happening uh, with the politics in any given place or a conflict in any given place. So I'm curious about how you've taken scraps and, and applied it uh, towards sort of focusing on how the overall uh, city of Mosul has changed. And I know that you're focusing, you're very early on in your your research for your PhD yes. right now. But give me sort of an idea of like what aspects of that focus interest you the most.
1: Yeah. So, so I so my PhD research grew out of my like interest um, and curiosity. For- Of scrap metal. And as you say, exactly, like, the scrap gets repurposed into metal rebar, which is used for construction. And in places like Erbil, there is, like, a significant boom um, because of all the investment in the real estate because it's more stable than the rest of the country. And Mm. in Mosul, because it was so destroyed, um, there's a boom in in reconstruction as well. And so as I was sort of – as I began my PhD, I moved a little bit away from the immediate political economy of, like, when the bullets literally stopped flying to – well, what happens a little bit later down the line. So I was interested in scrap because it was the only sort of economy that existed at the time. And then I was like, well, now there's a reconstruction boom and you're seeing it in two parallel cities that have this connection through scrap metal. And so wouldn't it be interesting to then move on maybe to the the sort of like next level up after this, after this scrap trade? Um, and as... Anybody who does a PhD can tell you, you end up like bombarding yourself with the readings and theories and stuff like that. And I got um, seduced by the world of political geography. <laughs> <laughs> what a
0: seductive world.
1: It is. Well, you're talking to a girl who likes to study trash, so. Yeah. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> what I find interesting, I
0: now. I'm going to use even... <laughs> that quote for the promo. <laughs>
1: I lost my turn. Yeah,
0: no, we were talking. Uh, you were seduced by the world. I was of...
1: seduced by the world of political geography, and particularly uh, people who are super interested in like the spatial elements of uh, of the post war, <laughs> and not just as the background or the stage upon which. Um, the like social dynamics and by social I mean things that exist in the social world so political economic and social dynamics um, play out but also as an agent itself Mm. of transformations of post-war transformations and so initially my interest in reconstruction was from the more political economy continuation of scrap and it morphed into wanting to tack on as well the layer of well the material world isn't just a manifestation or a reflection of ongoing political economy dynamics, but also an agent of those very di- dynamics. Mm-hmm. So they co-produce one another. And that's particularly what I have like gotten. I've been very fascinated by that element and how like, what I call the built environment, so the material world, the physical landscape, um both is a reflection of, but a creator as well mm-hmm. of how post-war dynamics play out, post-war conditions, um, post-war order.
0: Okay, so like we use scraps as an example of that that relationship. But what would be another relationship that you can see specifically in Erbil?
1: Um. So. Of that would be like a, a good example. Of that would be like the buildings mm-hmm. and the kinds of um, the kinds of buildings and like I don't know if you could call it urban planning, but um, the, the <laughs> no, actually, you know, to be fair, the city of Rebuild does have an urban plan, but um, would be like the kinds of buildings that exist and how and how these buildings and complexes of buildings represent um, the different like power structures at play. So you have like a lot of these compounds that get built um in for example the western part of the city which you know hosts more of the expats and more the wealthier community and so mm-hmm. it would caters to sort of this idea of like a more glamorous version of the city like a, a dubaiification i think a lot of people like to to, to describe it as yeah. or an attempt to 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 dubaiify mm-hmm. um, dubai-ify? dubaiify i haven't heard that one. <laughs> there's many variants um of, uh, of, of this part of the city and how it very much, and a lot of these real estate developers um, are Turkish or like related mm-hmm. to, to to Turkey. And part of that also like beca- the, the level of foreign investment in Erbil is also due to the like very specific sort of like policies and regulations that the Kurdish government has in terms of how you can invest. And the
0: political party here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, that's what I mean, right? Like right. the policies and regulations put in place by um, the, the the political party in power, mm-hmm. um, which
0: would be the PDK in Arbil.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, Just for people. Yeah. You well, so you don't have the same construction boom in places in, like, the green zone, mm-hmm. right? In, exactly. In the in, like, Zulian spaces like that. And again, I don't know, like, the exact, like, number of, like, what percentage of real estate investors in India yeah. are Turkish or not. But we do know that, like, a lot of, like, th- that does heavily exist. And it's largely because there are huge incentives for foreign investment mm-hmm. in Kurdistan that started, like, after the American invasion, um and that are very different from the investment laws in federal iraq right, right. so in terms of like the lev- the amount of the project that you can own i think in federal iraq is like you can only own if you're like having a yeah like a construction project like something like i want to say it's 49% um so you can't own the majority of it or something like that hmm. um i'm i'm not 100% sure of those numbers but in i do know that in kurdistan it's like you can own the full thing um and so that means that then the flow of money what gets built how and where becomes entirely up to the investors um who
0: may not even live in the country.
1: Yeah yeah. Exactly. Or often
0: do not live in the country.
1: Yeah, and yeah. so that very much then affects also what gets built, how, and for whom, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you are not from here, you don't live here, and your business is the business of money, but you're actually like shaping a city itself, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily have incentives to um, build infrastructure and um, go along with like an urban plan that is actually meant to like improve the city or like quality mm-hmm. of life within the city.
0: Quality of life. Especially for the uh, people in the city who might need the most services. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Which and isn't so the us. places of the city that get investments. Like, the yeah. all of the investments are in the western part of the city. None mm-hmm. of it is in the south or in the east. And most of us foreigners have never stepped foot in these places. Maybe we've gone to, like, Iskand Street for, like, a tea once or something. But, like... The right you, hey <laughs> <laughs> <No>. okay <laughs> i like i'm de- generalizing sorry <laughs> no i got
0: no um
1: yeah. but i think probably the reality is i like i can speak for myself like i've been to iskan once for a tea right mm. um but these are not spaces that i tend to go to or visit because yeah it doesn't cater to the things that i enjoy doing when i'm not in work and right. stuff like that um And so there is, like, a humanitarianization, I want to call it, uh, like, based on, like, the expat community. Like, I think you can see sort of certain, like, visually, you can see certain norms shift mm-hmm. because of, like, who is living where and the money that's invested into those communities. And that
0: bubble has partially grown off of crises in cities like Mosul.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I so, mean, here's the thing. like,
0: So, that, I mean, these, these buildings exist because of a demand to a certain extent. It's not just demand from investors. It's demand from the communities that have, like, come here since then.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, simply put, the safest market and industry to invest in in an unstable country is real estate Mm. and it has always been the case right this is also the case in Mosul right like a lot of people invest in real estate locally like politicians and stuff because it is sort of the safest place like you like a collateral that you can have like you're not these are like Iraq has an issue with people like not having bank accounts or not wanting not trusting the banks etc and like these all sort of like feed into one another and so like if you're going to like it's it's a better way to like have assets and like
0: Land. yeah exactly yeah. um <laughs> so let's let's we okay so we we focused on the like how air has shifted since mm-hmm. the conflict let's let's go back to mosul real quick yeah uh, and compare the two cities and what has changed in the development process in mosul since the conflict and the post-political sorry post-conflict political economy post-war yeah. political economy
1: Post-war political economy.
0: Post-war, compl- that's, that's more Because I dramatic. don't say, po-
1: yeah, post-conflict is kind of misleading. Right? And this is like a, probably like a, you know, this is like a it's academic different. specificity of like, you know, being, but like.
0: It, if only people could see the face sheet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so post-war is about like the end of like open hostilities, open armed hostilities. Mm-hmm. And post-conflict, like conflict, there's many forms of conflict. And there's conflict that exists outside of the confines of war, like beyond war. Um, In the sense that there's like a, you know, these things between peace, conflict, it's like a gradient. It's not like a binary of one versus the other. Okay. In the sense of like, to say that, you know, to say that Mosul is post-conflict means that there is peace, but is the situation in Mosul the same as the situation in Oslo? Right. right. Okay. So a valid point. <laughs> so in the nitpicky out, fashion no of of academia, which is relevant for the ki- and important for the kind of work that w- we're doing, um, we're quite careful about like the words that we choose to, to to use to describe. And so I'm quite careful to say post-war because I, I I don't know that I think that any of Iraq really qualifies as post-conflict. Okay. All right. Um, and that was a tangent. I don't know why. No, no, no. That's <laughs> a very no. It's a
0: very valid point, actually. So let's talk about uh, post-war Mosul, but not not necessarily post-conflict Mosul, in terms yes. of how it's developed uh, uh, since 2018, roughly.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think that anyone who sort of has had their eye a little bit on Mosul in the last couple of years or since liberation has er, knows that like reconstruction was unbelievably slow to start, and right. for like years, people were like, "What is going on?" And, like, you could hear excuses down from Baghdad of, like, no budget, da-da-da, whatever. Um, but the reality is is that, like, Reconstruction started, like, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. So in the last couple of years, finally, it started. Also, to be fair, rubble clearing took ages, right? Yeah. Because not only were you trying to clear out the rubble, but it was a really dangerous process because of all of the IDs that had been left over by right. ISIS. So this is, like, an added uh, – that's also, like, an added – element of it
0: and of, actually of the demining company that we uh, TetraTech, Tech uh, the demining company yeah. that we interviewed for the uh, uh, documentary um, they still say that 80% of the area that they are working on that we were interviewing them on uh, which is the Maidan old city area 80% of it is still not cleared
1: in Maidan yeah okay
0: yeah and that's one of the more focused on areas
1: yeah <laughs> yeah. well the Maidan area is interesting I mean yeah I'm sorry that's a other tangent back to what we're talking about yeah, I mean yeah no. um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm not sure that I think that the Maidan area is being focused on at all, beyond for, like, the two churches, nuri, and a couple historical houses, that UNESCO does. Like, right. I, I'm not, I think, like, the east, a lot of it has been rebuilt. Um, in the west, a lot of the rubble has been cleared, and some things have been done, and, like, you know, you have, like, electricity and water pipes that have been put back in. But it's been much slower. Obviously, the destruction is, like, much more vast in the West than it was in the East. But mm-hmm. there's there, there's a, a clear, f- like, from, from, like, a municipal or governorate perspective, there seems to be that most of that reconstruction investment happens in the East. What happens in the West is largely funded by the international community, and that's spearheaded by the UNESCO project. But the, the thing about the UNESCO project given that it's UNESCO, um, is that it focuses on heritage sites, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it, it's not in UNESCO's mandate to, like, rebuild apartment buildings right. for people to live in. Like, they're there to rebuild the heritage sites. Right. So that's primarily the old historic homes, uh, two churches, and the Nuri complex, which is more than just the mosque, but the entire complex.
0: So let's talk about Mosul as a whole and, like, the, the areas that you're focusing on for your PhD that you're interested in, like, really, really profiling uh, for your research in, ter- in terms of capturing sort of how... Uh, city spacing Uh, city spacing is this the correct way of saying it
1: C- continue and I'll let you know if that's, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if that's Let's
0: say let's say municipal spacing and city planning is shaped by a uh, uh, post-war economy.
1: Yeah, kind of so I think I think so as you mentioned at the beginning, like I'm in the early stages of my fieldwork. I'm in like the very first phase, and there'll probably be three different phases. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of in a phase where I'm trying to figure out exactly what I think is most relevant because you go in having done a lot of reading with ideas, um, but until you start talking to people and doing your interviews, it is Incredibly difficult as someone who's not from Mosul, who's not been to Mosul in blank amount of years, right? Like uh, to be able to like in a meaningful way or like in a concrete way say like, oh, I'm going to focus on like these elements. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can tell you what I'm with the the sort of like paths that I'm interested in looking at right now. So like one of them is looking at the um, they focus on heritage um, and what sort of role that plays in the – so there's two parts of this. (laughs) Um, Part of what's interesting about heritage is the narrative around Mosul that's being rebuilt, Mm -hmm. right, as a very diverse and cultural city, which was in fact the case at some point in Mosul's history. That wasn't the recent past. It wasn't the past right before ISIS. Like people who know some things about Mosul know that like – it it wasn't in 2014 where like things hit the fan in Mosul like things right. had things got bad in Mosul in 2005 mm-hmm. um and then yeah basically like after after the invasion after the end of the Baathist regime um and so what kind of narrative is being rebuilt and how does that impact the way the community like deals with conflict deals with the war and deals with sort of reconciliation processes the other element of heritage that's interesting is that this is the most visible kind of heritage like you see these UNESCO signs everywhere when people talk about reconstruction and mostly they talk about the like international reconstruction and how that sort of contrasts with the other forms of transformations to the built environment. Mm-hmm. So reconstruction, I think, often it's a term that means could mean a, a lot of different things to different people. But, like, in the East, you have entire spaces that used to be residential neighborhoods. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily that they were destroyed by they were. Maybe they were partially destroyed by the war. But now entire streets that used to be fully residential are just filled with shops now. Right. So there's a commercialization of, uh, like, residential neighborhoods. And that shifts, like, the way... Yeah, it shifts the city, pathways of mobility, like uh, the like the actual political economy. So what trade is happening, where, how, who, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that contrast with the like primary narrative that we hear about reconstruction. And so this like I'm quite a kind of I'm increasingly interested in what I feel like is a major dichotomy between like the narrative of Mosul versus some of the reality of Mosul, right? right. Or like, or maybe it's not narrative. Maybe it's not narrative versus reality, but two different Mosuls that coexist, uh, and like, what kind of like city or consequences to the city that will create, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe barriers between communities because it's it, it is ultimately. Um, ends up being geographically divided because of where destruction happened, because of where investment happens, because of where different actors are working.
0: And to jump on top of uh, something else, when we talk about the heritage of Mosul, I think one of the most important things to to factor in is that before 2003, Mosul was an incredibly diverse city. Um, And to bring it back to the inside Kurdish, uh, inside Kurdish, inside Kurdistan element of this podcast. where do you work, Aaron? Uh, I, work, I work here. Hi. <laughs> it's hot in here. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hot in here. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but to bring it, to bring it back to uh, uh, um, sort of a more uh, Kurdish-focused element of yes. uh, this podcast generally tries to trend towards, uh, Mosul was once an incredibly diverse city. It was once considered a Kurdish city. Uh, it is not anymore. Um, there are enormous uh, numbers of different minorities, religious and ethnic minorities that have left the city since. Um, and I'm always struck when I hear about this Narrative of rebuilding the heritage of Mosul. I'm like, okay, you're gonna bring all these different people back because they're not coming. So I don't know how you're gonna make that happen again.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that's part of it. And then if we want to bring it back to the Kurds too, one of the rabbit holes that I'm in right now, um, Kurdish rabbit hole. is a Kurdish rabbit hole. That sounds like a
0: really. Never mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it just sounds like I'm Alice in Wonderland and I've like jumped through a hole and it's just like all like Kurdish like. Uh, like, the wonderland is just, like, uh, people, like, Kurdish music and people dancing dubke.
0: Oh, uh, oh, that's charming. That was not the direction I was going to go in. <laughs> Anyways, back to,
1: the, back to your goddamn I research. Like, I think I'm a better person than you, by the way. I, 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 it's not even close. <laughs> back to the research. So one of the things that I'm kind of interested in that is also, like, brings this back to, to, to Kurdish stuff is that when people talk about the heritage of Mosul, like, they focus on... Specific communities, right? So they focus on rebuilding like the Christian spaces, the churches, that sort of stuff. And when you go to these places that have like, th- that are, that have like m- a museum for heritage and these sorts of things, um, they have like different elements of different communities. Um, but largely, I don't see where the Kurds are represented, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's not to say exclusively, because if you go to Beitna, um, which is, like, a sort of, like, a museum and cultural space in Mosul in the old city, um, they have, like, different mannequins, and part of those mannequins, they have, like, different outfits, dresses, traditional dresses from different communities, and you do have, like, a Kurdish couple, right? But, like, that's the most I've seen of, like, Kurdish heritage in Mosul. Right. And... What I'm getting the sense of is that the narrative that's being said is that it's the most slowy heritage and identity that's being revived, to take UNESCO's words, is is one of, like, an urban identity that doesn't necessarily distinguish be, like, it's about an urban identity versus, like, different groups within the city. Um, But then... In reviving or preserving that heritage, it is specific sites or cultural sort of like non tangible heritage of specific communities mm-hmm. often not not exclusively but very often it 's also what we hear so there's um, this is something that i 'm sort of exploring and curious about because and again i i 've just started so i 'm trying to get more information on this right. um, and and surprisingly like i mean i 'm interviewing some people next week about this but and I've asked a bunch of people about, like, where are the Kurds when we have this conversation about Muslavi heritage? And, and it seems to be a large question mark, just more generally in people's minds. Um, they A lot of people are just like, oh, like, I couldn't, I can't speak to that, right. which is fair enough. But um, this is something that I'm quite curious about, because if you do want to recreate this narrative of like this rich cultural history, why are, like, how can you do that without including every community that was present and are, is this being done on purpose or not
0: uh just to kind of wrap this up because I saw we, we've covered a bunch of different topics uh relatively quickly we're sitting on 40 minutes actually fun fact
1: you told me this was 20 minutes yeah I
0: lied it's also you did it's, it's hot in here so let's, let's come on a little less of the back chat please Isadora let me live all right I'm just I don't appreciate being cross-examined on my podcast
1: Aaron doesn't know where he works <laughs>
0: As a new PhD student, uh, uh, starting to focus on your research, uh, you've picked a particularly overwhelming um, and and very, very complicated city uh, to focus your research on. I'm curious about sort of and if we could refocus this towards you talking to maybe a PhD student who might also be starting their research or someone who might be interested in pursuing a PhD in the future um, on a similar subject. God help them,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly. Um,
0: what would you have to say about sort of uh, how how you're feeling about uh, what you have to do in terms of developing this and and, and f- figuring out a thesis and trying to trying to prove your research?
1: I'm really excited. The, the the I mean, part of the reason, yeah, you're right. It's like very overwhelming, very complicated, but. That's also the interesting elements right. of it, right? Like the 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 reality is is that I think that these are within academic scholarship. Like Iraq is quite an under researched country, mm-hmm. um, and that's not to say that there aren't a lot of people working on Iraq. I just I am of the opinion, and uh, a lot of other scholars that I know that work on Iraq and are based here think the same thing, is that there is an overwhelming focus on very specific things in academic research that's on Iraq, and it's a lot on like macro-level politics um, or international relations and foreign country involvement, right? So we talk about Iraq in the context of the U.S., or we talk about Iraq in the context of Iran versus U.S., Mm -hmm. but there's less done about... Iraq itself, right, as like a space where people's everyday lives play out, and um, increasingly, there's people doing that, um, and I think that that's what's makes me so excited about my research. And there's just like it's 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 a it's a wealth. Uh, there's just like a wealth of information and possibilities and avenues to explore, um, and you know, part of that is is like to be honest is also partly tragic right in the sense that like we these ba- these spaces are incredibly interesting and draw like a lot of curiosity because and are under researched because they've you know suffered a great deal and there's been a lot of conflict and that there's not enough focus on these places um so part of it is it you know it comes off of the back of something that 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 is like a painful history for for these people and these places and i think that hopefully in a very small way, I really don't want to overstate this, but I think those of us that do this kind of work hope to draw some attention and some light to other subjects about Iraq, things that we think are more relevant in terms of the narrative of Iraq that should be known outside Um and that's not to overstate it and, you know, claim that we're, like, you know, no no one here is saving this country. White with, uh, <laughs>
0: with savior is a door thought. God, thanks so much for coming.
1: On my shining <laughs> horse, uh, I should be knighted for the work that I do. As
0: you, as you ride past the
1: checkpoints. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is a joke. This is a joke. Um, but, yeah, I really don't want, like, I really cannot, like, uh, emphasize enough that, like, this is really not to say that, like, any, like, foreigner coming in and doing this research is going to, like, Fundamentally transform the conflict or whatever, but I, I think that it is important to acknowledge, like the reason that we're able to do this kind of work, and that is so exciting is partially because of the really rough history of this place, and hopefully in some way to be able to create some amount of awareness about what happens here, like concretely, locally, in terms of people's everyday lives, and bring the conversation hopefully back at least in. Especially in the circles of country that countries that intervene quite a bit mm. in this one, right? Bring the converse bring the light back to the conversations about how this impacts people's everyday lives here. Um and so yeah, I don't know. It's a uh, that's it. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> not being knighted anytime soon, but <laughs> okay.
0: Lady Isadora Goss, thank you so much for coming to this
1: studio. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much to Isadora for her insights on both barbecue and Mosul. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can check out our podcast on KurdistanIn.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at KurdistanIn.net. Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan.